everyone, this episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm, and why not get something sent to you in the mail? Feel like uh, you're getting something, you know? Hey, get something in the mail during self-isolation. Yeah, that's it. Bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm. Um, yeah, yeah, no, this is definitely to put a timestamp on when this show's coming out. It is March 20-somethingth. I've kind of quit... I don't know, caring about the time. Um, it's just kind of a countdown till late April when the kids go back to school, and I can, I don't know, I'm, I'm honestly just waiting for free tests, or not tests, just, I'm waiting for tests to be available in my area so I can go back to work, because I was sick, now I'm not sick, and I can't go back to work until I test clean. Uh, yeah, so hey, I'm going to be doing this for a while, I'm bored. Uh, None of my podcasts are podcasting because of the fact that everyone's sick, doesn't want to be around each other. This is the great thing about being a one-man show. I just find stuff, I put it up, and I put it out. I'm probably going to be doing some Skype interviews with some folks to keep this train moving. I want you to have entertainment. That's what I've always wanted. I've wanted to, you know, people who can't read. I want them to be able to read and listen to uh, some classic literature. People who have learning disabilities and you know, don't like to read. I want them to know who the classics are, my brother Joe. And this is this is kind of why I do this. And also, it's nice to have stuff to listen to all day long. I listen to podcasts all day long when I'm not making podcasts or working on stuff that I can't listen to podcasts. And I just want to say, support small podcasts. You know, there's all those, like, ear howls out there and you're your big media types and stuff like that support small podcasts help keep us going we keep you going we fill your day with all kinds of stuff help keep us going especially in a time like this where some of us are unemployed if you want to do that that'd be great there's more important stuff to give money and time to than podcasters right now I'll be super super duper serious about that so do what you can and remember we are available on Facebook um you know, PGTTCM Black Clock Audio Tales, Arthur Mackin's Three Imposters. This is one that I've done bits and pieces of when it was uh, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos 24-7. But now, hey, with this, with Black Clock Audio Tales, I finally get to cover it. If you want to go back through the catalogs and listen to old stuff, I've got various people recording this back when I was trying to do that. But hey, here we go. Three Imposters. We're available on Instagram. And also anywhere that you're going to find podcasts and Black Clock Audio Tales Special Edition. Novel of the Iron Maid. I think the most extraordinary event which I can recall took place about five years ago. I was then still feeling my way. I had declared for business and attended regularly at my office, but I had not succeeded in establishing a really profitable connection, and consequently I had a good deal of leisure time on my hands. I have never thought fit to trouble you with the details of my private life. Uh, They would be entirely devoid of interest. I must briefly say, however, that I had a numerous circle of acquaintance and was never at a loss as how to spend my evenings. I was so fortunate as to have friends in most of the ranks of the social order. There is nothing so unfortunate, to my mind, as a specialized circle wherein a certain round of ideas is continually traversed and retraversed. 
I have always tried to find out new types of persons whose brains contain something fresh to me. One may chance to gain information even from the conversation of city men on an omnibus. Amongst my acquaintance, I knew a young doctor who lived in a far outlying suburb, and I used often to brave the intolerably slow railway journey to have the pleasure of listening to his talk. One night we conversed so eagerly together over our pipes and whiskey that the clock passed unnoticed, and when I glanced up I realized with a shock that I had just five minutes in which to catch the last train. I made a dash for my hat and stick, jumped out of the house and down the steps, and tore at full speed up the street. It was no good, however. There was a shriek of the engine whistle, and I stood there at the station door and saw far on the long dark line of the embankment a red light shine and vanish, and a porter came down and shut the door with a bang. How far to London? I asked him. A good nine miles to Waterloo Bridge, and with that he went off. Before me was the long suburban street, its dreary distance marked by rows of twinkling lamps, and the air was poisoned by the faint sickly smell of burning bricks. It was not a cheerful prospect by any means, and I had to walk through nine miles of such streets, deserted as those of Pompeii. I knew pretty well what direction to take, so I set out wearily, looking at the stretch of lamps vanishing in perspective, and as I walked street after street branched off to right and left, some far reaching to distances that seemed endless, communicating with other systems of thoroughfare, and some mere protoplasmic streets, beginning in orderly fashion with serried two-storied houses, and ending suddenly in waste and pits, and rubbish heaps and fields whence the magic had departed. I have spoken of systems of thoroughfare, and I assure you that walking alone through these silent places I felt fantasy growing on me and some glamour of the infinite. There was here, I felt, an immensity as in the outer void of the universe. I passed from unknown to unknown, my way marked by lamps like stars, and on either hand was an unknown world where myriads of men dwelt and slept, street leading into street, as it seemed to world's end. At first, the road by which I was traveling was lined with houses of unutterable monotony, a wall of gray brick pierced by two stories of windows drawn close to the very pavement. But by degrees, I noticed an improvement. There were gardens, and these grew larger. The suburban builder began to allow himself a wider scope, and for a certain distance, each flight of steps was guarded by twin lions of plaster, and scents of flowers prevailed over the fume of the heated bricks. The road began to climb a hill, and looking up a side street, I saw the half-moon rise over plain trees, and there on the other side was as if a white cloud had fallen, and the air around it was sweetened as with incense. It was a may tree in full bloom. I pressed on stubbornly, listening for the wheels and the clatter of some belated hansom. 
but into that land of men who go to the city in the morning and return in the evening the hansom rarely enters and i had resigned myself once more to the walk when i suddenly became aware that someone was advancing to meet me along the sidewalk the man was strolling rather aimlessly and though the time and the place would have allowed an unconventional style of dress he was vested in the ordinary frock coat black tie and silk hat of civilization we met each other under the lamp and as often happens in this great town two casual passengers brought face to face found each in the other an acquaintance mr matthias i think i said quite so and you are frank burton you know you are a man with a christian name so i won't apologize for my familiarity but may i ask where you are going i explained the situation to him saying i had traversed a region as unknown to me as the darkest recesses of africa i think i have only about five miles further i concluded nonsense you must come home with me my house is close by in fact i was just taking my evening walk when we met come along i dare say you will find a makeshift bed easier than a five-mile walk i let him take my arm and lead me along though i was a good deal surprised at so much geniality from a man who was after all a mere casual club acquaintance i suppose i had not spoken to mr matthias half a dozen times he was a man who would sit silent in an armchair for hours neither reading nor smoking but now and again moistening his lips with his tongue and smiling queerly to himself i confess he had never attracted me and on the whole i should have preferred to continue my walk but he took my arm and led me up a side street and stopped at a door in a high wall we passed through the still moonlit garden beneath the black shadow of an old cedar and into an old red brick house with many gables i was tired enough and i sighed with relief as i let myself fall into a great leather armchair you know the infernal grit with which they strew the sidewalk in those suburban districts it makes walking a penance and i felt my four-mile tramp had made me more weary than ten miles on an honest country road i looked about the room with some curiosity there was a shaded lamp which threw a circle of brilliant light on a heap of papers lying on an old brass-bound secretaire of the last century but the room was all vague and shadowy and i could only see that it was long and low and that it was filled with indistinct objects which might be furniture mr matthias sat down in a second armchair and looked about him with that odd smile of his he was a queer-looking man clean-shaven and white to the lips i should think his age was something between fifty and sixty now i have got you here he began i must inflict my hobby on you you knew i was a collector oh yes i have devoted many years to collecting curiosities which i think are really curious but we must have a better light he advanced into the middle of the room and lit a lamp which hung from the ceiling and as the bright light flashed around the wick from every corner and space there seemed to start a horror 
great wooden frames with complicated apparatus of ropes and pulleys stood against the wall a wheel of strange shape had a place beside a thing that looked like a gigantic gridiron little tables glittered with bright steel instruments carelessly put down as if ready for use a screw and vice loomed out casting ugly shadows and in another nook was a saw with cruel jagged teeth yes said mr matthias they are as you suggest instruments of torture of torture and death some many i may say have been used a few are reproductions after ancient examples those knives were used for flaying that frame is a rack and a very fine specimen look at this it comes from venice you see that sort of collar something like a big horseshoe well the patient let us call him sat down quite comfortably and the horseshoe was neatly fitted round his neck then the two ends were joined with a silken band and the executioner began to turn the handle connected with the band the horseshoe contracted very gradually as the band tightened and the turning continued till the man was strangled it all took place quietly in one of those queer garrets under the leads but these things are all european the orientals are of course much more ingenious these are the chinese contrivances you have heard of the heavy death it is my hobby this sort of thing do you know i often sit here hour after hour and meditate over the collection i fancy i see the faces of the men who have suffered faces lean with agony and wet with sweats of death growing distinct out of the gloom and i hear the echoes of their cries for mercy but i must show you my latest acquisition come into the next room i followed mr matthias out the weariness of the walk the late hour and the strangeness of it all made me feel like a man in a dream nothing would have surprised me very much the second room was as the first crowded with ghastly instruments but beneath the lamp was a wooden platform and a figure stood on it it was a large statue of a naked woman fashioned in green bronze the arms were stretched out and there was a smile on the lips it might well have been intended for a venus and yet there was about the thing an evil and a deadly look mr matthias looked at it complacently quite a work of art isn't it he said it's made of bronze as you see but it has long had the name of the iron maid i got it from germany and it was only unpacked this afternoon indeed i have not yet had time to open the letter of advice you see that very small knob between the breasts well the victim was bound to the maid the knob was pressed and the arms slowly tightened round the neck you can imagine the result as mr matthias talked he patted the figure affectionately i had turned away for i sickened at the sight of the man and his loathsome treasure there was a slight click of which i took no notice uh, it was not much louder than the tick of a clock and then i heard a sudden whirr the noise of machinery in motion and i faced round 
i have never forgotten the hideous agony on matthias's face as those relentless arms tightened about his neck there was a wild struggle as of a beast in the toils and then a shriek that ended in a choking groan the whirring noise had suddenly changed into a heavy droning i tore with all my might at the bronze arms and strove to wrench them apart but i could do nothing the head had slowly bent down and the green lips were on the lips of matthias of course i had to attend at the inquest the letter which had accompanied the figure was found unopened on the study table the german firm of dealers cautioned their client to be most careful in touching the iron maid as the machinery had been put in thorough working order for many revolving weeks mr burton delighted dyson by his agreeable conversation diversified by anecdote and interspersed with the narration of singular adventures finally however he vanished as suddenly as he had appeared and on the occasion of his last visit he contrived to loot a copy of his namesake's anatomy dyson considering this violent attack on the rights of property and certain glaring inconsistencies in the talk of his late friend arrived at the conclusion that his stories were fabulous and that the iron maid only existed in the sphere of a decorative imagination end of novel of the iron maid the recluse of bayswater amongst the many friends who were favored with the occasional pleasure of mr dyson's society was mr edgar russell realist and obscure struggler who occupied a small back room on the second floor of a house in abington grove notting hill turning off from the main street and walking a few paces onward one was conscious of a certain calm a drowsy peace which made the feet inclined to loiter and this was ever the atmosphere of abington grove the houses stood a little back with gardens where the lilac and laburnum and blood-red may blossomed gaily in their seasons and there was a corner where an older house in another street had managed to keep a back garden of real extent a walled-in garden whence there came a pleasant scent of greenness after the rains of early summer where old elms held memories of the open fields where there was yet sweet grass to walk on the houses in abington grove belonged chiefly to the nondescript stucco period of thirty-five years ago tolerably built with passable accommodation for moderate incomes they had largely passed into the state of lodgings and cards bearing the inscription furnished apartments were not infrequent over the doors here then in a house of sufficiently good appearance mr russell had established himself for he looked upon the traditional dirt and squalor of grub street as a false and obsolete convention and preferred as he said to live within sight of green leaves indeed from his room one had a magnificent view of a long line of gardens and a screen of poplars shut out the melancholy back premises of wilton street during the summer months mr russell lived chiefly on bread and tea for his means were of the smallest 
but when dyson came to see him he would send out the slavey for six ale and dyson was always at liberty to smoke as much of his own tobacco as he pleased the landlady had been so unfortunate as to have her drawing-room floor vacant for many months a card had long proclaimed the void within and dyson when he walked up the steps one evening in early autumn had a sense that something was missing and looking at the fanlight saw the appealing card had disappeared you have let your first floor have you he said as he greeted mr russell yes it was taken about a fortnight ago by a lady indeed said dyson always curious a young lady yes i believe so she is a widow and wears a thick crape veil i have met her once or twice on the stairs and in the street but i should not know her face well said dyson when the beer had arrived and the pipes were in full blast hmm, and what have you been doing do you find the work getting any easier alas said the young man with an expression of great gloom the life is a purgatory and all but a hell i write picking out my words weighing and balancing the force of every syllable calculating the minutest effects that language can produce erasing and rewriting and spending a whole evening over a page of manuscript and then in the morning when i read what i have written well there is nothing to be done but to throw it in the waste-paper basket if the verso has been already written on or to put it in the drawer if the other side happens to be clean when i have written a phrase which undoubtedly embodies a happy turn of thought i find it dressed up in feeble commonplace and when the style is good it serves only to conceal the baldness of superannuated fancies i sweat over my work dyson every finished line means so much agony i envy the lot of the carpenter in the side street who has a craft which he understands when he gets an order for a table he does not writhe with anguish but if i were so unlucky as to get an order for a book i think i should go mad my dear fellow you take it all too seriously you should let the ink flow more readily above all firmly believe when you sit down to write that you are an artist and that whatever you are about is a masterpiece suppose ideals fail you say as i heard one of our most exquisite artists say it's of no consequence the ideas are all there at the bottom of that box of cigarettes you indeed smoke a pipe but the application is the same besides you must have some happy moments these should be ample consolation perhaps you are right but such moments are so few and then there is the torture of a glorious conception matched with execution beneath the standard of the family story paper for instance i was happy for two hours a night or two ago i lay awake and saw visions but then the morning what was your idea it seemed to me a splendid one i thought of balzac and the comedie humaine of zola and the rougon macquart family it dawned upon me that i would write the history of a street every house should form a volume i fixed upon the street i saw each house and read as clearly as in letters the physiology and psychology of each the little byway stretched before me in its actual shape 
a street that i know and have passed down a hundred times with some twenty houses prosperous and mean and lilac bushes in purple blossom and yet it was at the same time a symbol a via dolorosa of hopes cherished and disappointed of years of monotonous existence without content or discontent of tragedies and obscure sorrows and on the door of one of those houses i saw the red stain of blood and behind a window two shadows blackened and faded on the blind as they swayed on tightened cords the shadows of a man and a woman hanging in a vulgar gaslit parlor these were my fancies but when pen touched paper they shriveled and vanished away yes said dyson there's a lot in that i envy you the pains of transmuting vision into reality and still more i envy you the day when you will look at your bookshelf and see twenty goodly books upon the shelves the series complete and done forever let me entreat you to have them bound in solid parchment of gold lettering it is the only real cover for a valiant book when i look in at the windows of some choice shop and see the bindings of levant morocco with pretty tools and panelings and your sweet contrasts of red and green i say to myself these are not books but bibelots a book bound so a true book mind you is like a gothic statue draped in brocade of leones alas said russell we need not discuss the binding the books are not begun the talk went on as usual till eleven o'clock when dyson bade his friend good night he knew the way downstairs and walked down by himself but greatly to his surprise as he crossed the first floor landing the door opened slightly and a hand was stretched out beckoning dyson was not the man to hesitate under such circumstances in a moment he saw himself involved in adventure and as he told himself the dysons had never disobeyed a lady's summons softly then with due regard for the lady's honor he would have entered the room when a low but clear voice spoke to him go downstairs and open the door and shut it again rather loudly then come up to me and for heaven's sakes walk softly dyson obeyed her commands not without some hesitation for he was afraid of meeting the landlady or the maid on his return journey but walking like a cat and making each step he trod on crack loudly he flattered himself that he had escaped observation and as he gained the top of the stairs the door opened wide before him and he found himself in the lady's drawing-room bowing awkwardly pray be seated sir perhaps this chair will be the best it was the favorite chair of my landlady's deceased husband i would ask you to smoke but the odor would betray me i know my proceedings must seem to you unconventional but i saw you arrive this evening and i do not think you would refuse to help a woman who is so unfortunate as i am mr dyson looked shyly at the young lady before him she was dressed in deep mourning but the piquant smiling face and charming hazel eyes ill accorded with the heavy garments and the mouldering surface of the crepe madame he said gallantly your instinct has served you well 
we will not trouble if you please about the question of social conventions the chivalrous gentleman knows nothing of such matters i hope i may be privileged to serve you you are kind to me but i knew you would be so alas sir i have had experience of life and i am rarely mistaken yet man is too often so violent so misjudging that i trembled even as i resolved to take this step which for all i knew might prove to be both desperate and ruinous with me you have nothing to fear said dyson i was nurtured in the faith of chivalry and i have always endeavored to remember the proud traditions of my race confide in me then and count upon my secrecy and if it prove possible you may rely on my help sir i will not waste your time which i am sure is valuable by idle parleyings learn then that i am a fugitive and in hiding here i place myself in your power you have but to describe my features and i fall into the hands of my relentless enemy mr dyson wondered for a passing instant how this could be but he only renewed his promise of silence repeating that he would be the embodied spirit of dark concealment good said the lady the oriental fervor of your style is delightful in the first place i must disabuse your mind of the conviction that i am a widow these gloomy vestments have been forced on me by strange circumstance in plain language i have deemed it expedient to go disguised you have a friend i think in the house mr russell he seems of a coy and retiring nature excuse me madam said dyson he is not coy but he is a realist and perhaps you are aware that no carthusian monk can emulate the cloistral seclusion in which a realistic novelist loves to shroud himself it is his way of observing human nature well well said the lady all this though deeply interesting is not germane to our affair i must tell you my history with these words the young lady proceeded to relate the novel of the white powder end of the recluse of bayswater novel of the white powder my name is lester my father major general win lester a distinguished officer of artillery succumbed five years ago to a complicated liver complaint acquired in the deadly climate of india a year later my only brother francis came home after an exceptionally brilliant career at the university and settled down with the resolution of a hermit to master what has been well called the great legend of the law he was a man who seemed to live in utter indifference to everything that is called pleasure and though he was handsomer than most men and could talk as merrily and wittily as if he were a mere vagabond he avoided society and shut himself up in a large room at the top of the house to make himself a lawyer ten hours a day of hard reading was at first his allotted portion from the first light in the east to the late afternoon he remained shut up with his books taking a hasty half-hour's lunch with me as if he grudged the wasting of the moments and going out for a short walk when it began to grow dusk i thought that such relentless application must be injurious and tried to cajole him from the crabbed textbooks but his ardor seemed to grow rather than diminish and his daily tale of hours increased 
I spoke to him seriously, suggesting some occasional relaxation, if it were but an idle afternoon with a harmless novel. But he laughed, and said that he read about feudal tenures when he felt in need of amusement, and scoffed at the notion of theaters or a month's fresh air. I confessed that he looked well and seemed not to suffer from his labors, but I knew that such unnatural toil would take revenge at last, and I was not mistaken. A look of anxiety began to lurk about his eyes, and he seemed languid, and at last he avowed that he was no longer in perfect health. He was troubled, he said, with a sensation of dizziness, and awoke now and then of nights from fearful dreams terrified and cold with icy sweats. I am taking care of myself, he said, so you must not trouble. I passed the whole of yesterday afternoon in idleness, leaning back in that comfortable chair you gave me, and scribbling nonsense on a sheet of paper. No, no, I will not overdo my work. I shall be well enough in a week or two, depend upon it. Yet in spite of his assurances, I could see that he grew no better, but rather worse. He would enter the drawing room with a face all miserably wrinkled and despondent, and endeavor to look gaily when my eyes fell on him, and I thought such symptoms of evil omen, and was frightened sometimes at the nervous irritation of his movements, and at glances which I could not decipher. Much against his will, I prevailed on him to have medical advice, and with an ill grace he called on our old doctor. Dr. Haberden cheered me after examination of his patient. There is nothing really amiss, he said to me. No doubt he reads too hard and eats hastily, and then goes back again to his books in too great a hurry, and the natural sequence is some digestive trouble and a little mischief in the nervous system. But I think I do indeed, Miss Lester, that we shall be able to set this all right. I have written him a prescription which ought to do great things, so you have no cause for anxiety. My brother insisted on having the prescription made by a chemist in the neighborhood. It was an odd, old-fashioned shop devoid of the studied coquetry and calculated glitter that makes so gay a show on the counters and shelves of the modern apothecary. But Francis liked the old chemist and believed in the scrupulous purity of his drugs. The medicine was sent in due course, and I saw that my brother took it regularly after lunch and dinner. It was an innocent-looking white powder, of which a little was dissolved in a glass of cold water. I stirred it in, and it seemed to disappear, leaving the water clear and colorless. At first, Francis seemed to benefit greatly. The weariness vanished from his face, and he became more cheerful than he had ever been since the time when he left school. He talked gaily of reforming himself, and avowed to me that he had wasted his time. I have given too many hours to law, he said laughing. I think you have saved me in the nick of time. Come, I shall be Lord Chancellor yet, but I must not forget life. You and I will have a holiday together before long. We will go to Paris and enjoy ourselves and keep away from the Bibliothèque Nationale. I confessed myself delighted with the prospect. When shall we go? I said. I can start the day after tomorrow if you like. Ah, that is perhaps a little too soon. After all, I do not know London yet, and I suppose a man ought to give the pleasures of his own country the first choice. 
but we will go off together in a week or two so try and furbish up your french i only know law french myself i am afraid that wouldn't do we were just finishing dinner and he quaffed off his medicine with a parade of carousal as if it had been wine from some choicest bin has it any particular taste i said no i should not know i was not drinking water and he got up from his chair and began to pace up and down the room as if he were undecided as to what to do next shall we have coffee in the drawing-room i said or would you like to smoke no i think i will take a turn it seems a pleasant evening look at the afterglow why it is as if a great city were burning in flames and down there beneath the dark houses it is raining blood fast yes i will go out i may be in soon but i shall take my key so good night dear if i don't see you again the door slammed behind him and i saw him walk lightly down the street swinging his malacca cane and i felt grateful to dr haberden for such an improvement i believe my brother came home very late that night but he was in a merry mood the next morning i walked on without thinking where i was going he said enjoying the freshness of the air and livened by the crowds as i reached more frequented quarters and then i met an old college friend orford in the press of the pavement and then well we enjoyed ourselves i have felt what it is to be young and a man i find i have blood in my veins as other men have i made an appointment with orford for tonight there will be a little party of us at the restaurant yes i shall enjoy myself for a week or two and hear the chimes at midnight and then we will go for our little trip together such was the transmutation of my brother's character that in a few days he became a lover of pleasure a careless and merry idler of western pavements a hunter out of snug restaurants and a fine critic of fantastic dancing he grew fat before my eyes and said no more of paris for he had clearly found his paradise in london i rejoiced and yet wondered a little for there was i thought something in his gaiety that indefinitely displeased me though i could not have defined my feeling but by degrees there came a change he returned still in the cold hours of the morning but i heard no more about his pleasures and one morning as we sat at breakfast together i looked suddenly into his eyes and saw a stranger before me oh francis i cried oh francis francis what have you done and rending sobs cut the words short i went weeping out of the room for though i knew nothing yet i knew all and by some odd play of thought i remember the evening when he first went abroad and the picture of the sunset sky glowed before me the clouds like a city in burning flames and the rain of blood yet i did battle with such thoughts resolving that perhaps after all no great harm had been done and in the evening at dinner i resolved to press him to fix a day for our holiday in paris we had talked easily enough and my brother had just taken his medicine which he continued all the while i was about to begin my topic when the words forming in my mind vanished and i wondered for a second what icy and intolerable weight oppressed my heart and suffocated me as with the unutterable horror of the coffin lid nailed down on the living we had dined without candles the room had slowly grown from twilight to gloom and the walls and corners were indistinct in the shadow 
shadow, but from where I sat I looked out into the street, and as I thought of what I would say to Francis, the sky began to flush and shine, as it had done on a well-remembered evening, and in the gap between two dark masses that were houses an awful pageantry of flame appeared, lurid whorls of writhed cloud, and utter depths burning, gray masses like the fume blown from a smoking city, and an evil glory blazing far above, shot with tongues of more ardent fire, and below, as if there were a deep pool of blood. I looked down to where my brother sat facing me, and the words were shaped on my lips when I saw his hand resting on the table. Between the thumb and forefinger of the closed hand there was a mark, a small patch about the size of a sixpence, and somewhat of the color of a bad bruise. Yet by some sense I cannot define, I knew that what I saw was no bruise at all. Oh, if human flesh could burn with flame, and if flame could be black as pitch, such was that before me. Without thought or fashioning of words, gray horror shaped within me at the sight, and in an inner cell it was known to be a brand. For the moment the stained sky became dark as midnight, and when the light returned to me I was alone in the silent room, and soon after I heard my brother go out. Late as it was I put on my hat and went to Dr. Haberden, and in his great consulting room, ill-lighted by a candle which the doctor brought in with him, with stammering lips and a voice that would break in spite of my resolve, I told him all, from the day on which my brother began to take the medicine, down to the dreadful thing I had seen scarcely half an hour before. When I had done, the doctor looked at me for a minute with an expression of great pity on his face. "'My dear Miss Lester,' he said, "'you have evidently been anxious about your brother. "'You have been worrying over him, I am sure. "'Come now, is it not so?' "'I have certainly been anxious,' I said. "'For the last week or two I have not felt at ease.' "'Quite so. "'You know, of course, what a queer thing the brain is.' I understand what you mean, but I was not deceived. I saw what I have told you with my own eyes. Yes, yes, of course. But your eyes had been staring at that very curious sunset we had tonight. That is the only explanation. You will see it in the proper light tomorrow, I am sure. But remember, I am always ready to give any help that is in my power. Do not scruple to come to me or to send for me if you are in any distress. I went away but little comforted, all confusion and terror and sorrow, not knowing where to turn. When my brother and I met the next day, I looked quickly at him and noticed with a sickening at heart that the right hand, the hand on which I had clearly seen the patch as of a black fire, was wrapped up with a handkerchief. What is the matter with your hand, Francis? I said in a steady voice. Nothing of consequence. I cut a finger last night, and it bled rather awkwardly, so I did it up roughly to the best of my ability. I will do it neatly for you, if you like. No, thank you, dear. This will answer very well. Suppose we have breakfast. I am quite hungry. We sat down, and I watched him. 
he scarcely ate or drank at all but tossed his meat to the dog when he thought my eyes were turned away there was a look in his eyes that i had never yet seen and the thought flashed across my mind that it was a look that was scarcely human i was firmly convinced that awful and incredible as was the thing i had seen the night before yet it was no illusion no glamour of bewildered sense and in the course of the evening i went again to the doctor's house he shook his head with an air puzzled and incredulous and seemed to reflect for a few minutes and you say he still keeps up the medicine but why as i understand all the symptoms he complained of have disappeared long ago why should he go on taking the stuff when he is quite well and by the by where did he get it made up at sacy's i never send anyone there the old man is getting careless suppose you come with me to the chemist's i should like to have some talk with him we walked together to the shop old sacy knew dr haberden and was quite ready to give any information you have been sending that in to mr lester for some weeks i think on my prescription said the doctor giving the old man a penciled scrap of paper the chemist put on his great spectacles with trembling uncertainty and held up the paper with a shaking hand oh yes he said i have very little of it left and it is rather an uncommon drug and i have had it in stock for some time i must get some more if mr lester goes on with it kindly let me have a look at the stuff said haberdine and the chemist gave him a glass bottle he took out the stopper and smelt the contents and looked strangely at the old man where did you get this he said and what is it for one thing mr sacy it is not what i prescribed yes yes i see the label is right enough but i tell you this is not the drug i have had it a long time said the old man in feeble terror i got it from burbage's in the usual way it is not prescribed often and i have had it on the shelf for some years you see there is very little left you had better give it to me said haberden i am afraid something wrong has happened we went out of the shop in silence the doctor carrying the bottle neatly wrapped in paper under his arm dr haberden i said when we had walked a little way dr haberden yes he said looking at me gloomily enough i should like you to tell me what my brother has been taking twice a day for the last month or so frankly miss lester i don't know we will speak of this when we get to my house we walked on quickly without another word till we reached dr haberden's he asked me to sit down and began pacing up and down the room his face clouded over as i could see with no common fears well he said at length this is all very strange it is only natural that you should feel alarmed and i must confess that my mind is far from easy we will put aside if you please what you told me last night and this morning but the fact remains that for the last few weeks mr lester has been impregnating his system with a drug which is completely unknown to me i tell you it is not what i ordered and what the stuff in the bottle really is remains to be seen he undid the wrapper and cautiously tilted a few grains of the white powder on to a piece of paper and peered curiously at it yes he said it is like the sulfate of quinine as you say it is flaky but smell it he held the bottle to me and i bent over it 
It was a strange, sickly smell, vaporous and overpowering, like some strong anesthetic. I shall have it analyzed, said Haberden. I have a friend who has devoted his whole life to chemistry as a science. Then we shall have something to go upon. No, no, say no more about that other matter. I cannot listen to that, and take my advice and think no more about it yourself. That evening my brother did not go out as usual after dinner. I have had my fling, he said with a queer laugh, and I must go back to my old ways. A little law will be quite a relaxation after so sharp a dose of pleasure, and he grinned to himself, and soon after went up to his room. His hand was still all bandaged. End of part one of Novel of the White Powder Part Two of Novel of the White Powder Dr. Haberden called a few days later. I have no special news to give you, he said. Chambers is out of town, so I know no more about that stuff than you do. But I should like to see Mr. Lester if he is in. He is in his room, I said. I will tell him you are here. No, no, I will go up to him. We will have a little quiet talk together. I dare say that we have made a good deal of fuss about a very little, for after all, whatever the powder may be, it seems to have done him good. The doctor went upstairs, and standing in the hall I heard his knock, and the opening and shutting of the door, and then I waited in the silent house for an hour, and the stillness grew more and more intense as the hands of the clock crept round. Then there sounded from above the noise of a door shut sharply, and the doctor was coming down the stairs. His footsteps crossed the hall, and there was a pause at the door. I drew a long, sick breath with difficulty, and saw my face white in a little mirror, and he came in and stood at the door. There was an unutterable horror shining in his eyes. He steadied himself by holding the back of a chair with one hand. His lower lip trembled like a horse's, and he gulped and stammered unintelligible sounds before he spoke. I have seen that man, he began in a dry whisper. I have been sitting in his presence for the last hour. My God, and I am alive and in my senses. I, who have dealt with death all my life and have dabbled with the melting ruins of the earthly tabernacle, but not this, oh, not this. And he covered his face with his hands as if to shut out the sight of something before him. Do not send for me again, Miss Lester, he said with more composure. I can do nothing in this house. Goodbye. As I watched him totter down the steps and along the pavement toward his house, it seemed to me that he had aged by ten years since the morning. My brother remained in his room. He called out to me in a voice I hardly recognized that he was very busy and would like his meals brought to his door and left there. I gave the order to the servants. From that day, it seemed as if the arbitrary conception we call time had been annihilated for me. 
i lived in an ever-present sense of horror going through the routine of the house mechanically and only speaking a few necessary words to the servants now and then i went out and paced the streets for an hour or two and came home again but whether i were without or within my spirit delayed before the closed door of the upper room and shuddering waited for it to open i have said that i scarcely reckon time but i suppose it must have been a fortnight after dr haberden's visit that i came home from my stroll a little refreshed and lightened the air was sweet and pleasant and the hazy form of green leaves floating cloud-like in the square and the smell of blossoms had charmed my senses and i felt happier and walked more briskly as i delayed a moment at the verge of the pavement waiting for a van to pass by before crossing over to the house i happened to look up at the windows and instantly there was a rush and swirl of deep cold waters in my ears my heart leapt up and fell down down as into a deep hollow and i was amazed with a dread and terror without form or shape i stretched out a hand blindly through the folds of thick darkness from the black and shadowy valley and held myself from falling while the stones beneath my feet rocked and swayed and tilted and the sense of solid things seemed to sink away from under me i had glanced up at the window of my brother's study and at that moment the blind was drawn aside and something that had life stared out into the world nay i cannot say i saw a face or any human likeness a living thing two eyes a burning flame glared at me and they were in the midst of something as formless as my fear the symbol and presence of all evil and all hideous corruption i stood shuddering and quaking as with the grip of ague sick with unspeakable agonies of fear and loathing and for five minutes i could not summon force or motion to my limbs when i was within the door i ran up the stairs to my brother's room and knocked francis francis i cried for heaven's sakes answer me what is the horrible thing in your room cast it out francis cast it from you i heard a voice as of feet shuffling slowly and awkwardly and a choking gurgling sound as if someone was struggling to find utterance and then the noise of a voice broken and stifled and words that i could scarcely understand there is nothing here the voice said pray do not disturb me i am not very well to-day i turned away horrified and yet helpless i could do nothing and i wondered why francis had lied to me for i had seen the appearance beyond the glass too plainly to be deceived though it was but the sight of a moment and i sat still conscious that there had been something else something i had seen in the first flash of terror before those burning eyes had looked at me suddenly i remembered as i lifted my face the blind was being drawn back and i had had an instant's glance 
of the thing that was moving it and in my recollection i knew that a hideous image was engraved forever on my brain it was not a hand there were no fingers that held the blind but a black stump pushed it aside the mouldering outline and the clumsy movement as of a beast's paw had glowed into my senses before the darkling waves of terror had overwhelmed me as i went down quick into the pit my mind was aghast at the thought of this and of the awful presence that dwelt with my brother in his room i went to his door and cried to him again but no answer came that night one of the servants came up to me and told me in a whisper that for three days food had been regularly placed at the door and left untouched the maid had knocked but had received no answer she had heard the noise of shuffling feet that i had noticed day after day went by and still my brother's meals were brought to his door and left untouched and though i knocked and called again and again i could get no answer the servants began to talk to me it appeared they were as alarmed as i the cook said that when my brother first shut himself up in his room she used to hear him come out at night and go about the house and once she said the hall door had opened and closed again but for several nights she had heard no sound the climax came at last it was in the dusk of the evening and i was sitting in the darkening dreary room when a terrible shriek jarred and rang harshly out of the silence and i heard a frightened scurry of feet dashing down the stairs i waited and the servant-maid staggered into the room and faced me white and trembling oh miss helen she whispered oh for the lord's sake miss helen what has happened look at my hand miss look at that hand i drew her to the window and saw that there was a black wet stain upon her hand i do not understand you i said will you explain to me i was going to your room just now she began i was turning down the bedclothes and all of a sudden there was something fell upon my hand wet and i looked up and the ceiling was black and dripping on me i looked hard at her and bit my lip come with me i said bring your candle with you the room i slept in was beneath my brother's and as i went in i felt i was trembling i looked up at the ceiling and saw a patch all black and wet and a dew of black drops upon it and a pool of horrible liquor soaking into the white bedclothes i ran upstairs and knocked loudly oh francis francis my dear brother i cried what has happened to you and i listened there was a sound of choking and a noise like water bubbling and regurgitating but nothing else and i called louder but no answer came in spite of what dr habiton had said i went to him with tears streaming down my cheeks i told him all that had happened and he listened to me with a face set hard and grim for your father's sake he said at last i will go with you though i can do nothing we went out together the streets were dark and silent and heavy with heat and a drought of many weeks i saw the doctor's face white under the gas lamps and when we reached the house his hand was shaking we did not hesitate we went upstairs directly i held the lamp and he called out in a loud determined voice mr lester do you hear me i insist on seeing you answer me at once 
There was no answer, but we both heard that choking noise I have mentioned. Mr. Lester, I am waiting for you. Open the door this instant, or I shall break it down. And he called a third time in a voice that rang and echoed from the walls. Mr. Lester, for the last time I order you to open the door. Ah, uh, he said after a pause of heavy silence. We are wasting time here. Will you be so kind as to get me a poker or something of the kind? I ran into a little room at the back where odd articles were kept and found a heavy adz-like tool that I thought might serve the doctor's purpose. Very good, he said. That will do, I dare say. I give you notice, Mr. Lester, he cried loudly at the keyhole, that I am now about to break into your room. Then I heard the wrench of the adz, and the woodwork split and cracked under it. With a loud crash, the door suddenly burst open, and for a moment we started back aghast at a fearful screaming cry. No human voice, but as the roar of a monster that burst forth inarticulate and struck at us out of the darkness. Hold the lamp, said the doctor, and we went in and glanced quickly around the room. There it is, said Dr. Haberden, drawing a quick breath. Look in that corner. I looked, and a pang of horror seized my heart as with a white hot iron. There upon the floor was a dark and putrid mass, seething with corruption and hideous rottenness, neither liquid nor solid, but melting and changing before our eyes, and bubbling with unctuous oily bubbles like boiling pitch, and out of the midst of it shone two burning points like eyes, and I saw a writhing and stirring as of limbs, and something moved and lifted up what might have been an arm. The doctor took a step forward, raised the iron bar, and struck at the burning points. He drove in the weapon and struck again and again in the fury of loathing, and at last the thing was quiet. A week or two later, when I had to some extent recovered from the terrible shock, Dr. Haberden came to see me. I have sold my practice, he began, and tomorrow I am sailing on a long voyage. I do not know whether I shall ever return to England. In all probability, I shall buy a little land in California and settle there for the remainder of my life. I have brought you this packet, which you may open and read when you feel able to do so. It contains the report of Dr. Chambers on what I submitted to him. Goodbye, Miss Lester. Goodbye. When he was gone, I opened the envelope. I could not wait, and proceeded to read the papers within. Here is the manuscript, and if you will allow me, I will read you the astounding story it contains. My dear Haberden, the letter began, I have delayed inexcusably in answering your questions as to the white substance you sent me. To tell you the truth, I have hesitated for some time as to what course I should adopt, for there is a bigotry and orthodox standard in physical science as in theology, and I knew that if I told you the truth, I should offend rooted prejudices, which I once held dear myself. However, I have determined to be plain with you, and first I must enter into a short personal explanation. You have known me, Haberden, for many years as a scientific man. You and I have talked of our profession together, 
and discuss the hopeless gulf that opens before the feet of those who think to attain to truth by any means whatsoever except the beaten way of experiment and observation in the sphere of material things i remember the scorn with which you have spoken to me of men of science who have dabbled a little in the unseen and have timidly hinted that perhaps the senses are not after all the eternal impenetrable bounds of all knowledge the everlasting walls beyond which no human being has ever passed we have laughed together heartily and i think justly at the occult follies of the day disguised under various names the mesmerisms spiritualisms materializations theosophies and all the rabble rout of imposture with their machinery of poor tricks and feeble conjuring the true back parlor of shabby london streets yet in spite of what i have said i must confess to you that i am no materialist taking the word of course in its usual significance it is now many years since i have convinced myself convinced myself a skeptic remember that the old iron-bound theory is utterly and entirely false perhaps this confession will not wound you so sharply as it would have done twenty years ago for i think you cannot have failed to notice that for some time hypotheses have been advanced by men of pure science which are nothing less than transcendental and i suspect that most modern chemists and biologists of repute would not hesitate to subscribe the dictum of the old schoolman omnia exeunt in mysterium which means i take it that every branch of human knowledge if traced up to its source and final principles vanishes into mystery i need not trouble you now with a detailed account of the painful steps which led me to my conclusions a few simple experiments suggested a doubt as to my then standpoint and a train of thought that rose from circumstances comparatively trifling brought me far my old conception of the universe has been swept away and i stand in a world that seems as strange and awful to me as the endless waves of the ocean seen for the first time shining from a peak in darien now i know that the walls of sense that seemed so impenetrable that seemed to loom up above the heavens and to be found below the depths and to shut us in for evermore are no such everlasting impassable barriers as we fancied but thinnest and most airy veils that melt away before the seeker and dissolve as the early mist of the morning about the brooks i know that you never adopted the extreme materialistic position you did not go about trying to prove a universal negative for your logical sense withheld you from that crowning absurdity but i am sure that you will find all that i am saying strange and repellent to your habits of thought yet haberden what i tell you is the truth nay to adopt our common language the sole and scientific truth verified by experience and the universe is verily more splendid and more awful than we used to dream the whole universe my friend is a tremendous sacrament a mystic ineffable force and energy veiled by an outward form of matter 
and man and the sun and the other stars and the flower of the grass and the crystal and the test tube are each and every one as spiritual as material and subject to an inner working you will perhaps wonder haberden whence all this tends but i think a little thought will make it clear you will understand that from such a standpoint the whole view of things is changed and what we thought incredible and absurd may be possible enough in short we must look at legend and belief with other eyes and be prepared to accept tales that had become mere fables indeed this is no such great demand after all modern science will concede as much in a hypocritical manner you must not it is true believe in witchcraft but you may credit hypnotism ghosts are out of date but there is a good deal to be said for the theory of telepathy give superstition a greek name and believe in it should almost be a proverb so much for my personal explanation you sent me haberden a file stoppered and sealed containing a small quantity of flaky white powder obtained from a chemist who has been dispensing it to one of your patients i am not surprised to hear that this power refused to yield any results to your analysis it is a substance which was known to a few many hundred years ago but which i never expected to have submitted to me from the shop of a modern apothecary there seems no reason to doubt the truth of the man's tale he no doubt got as he says the rather uncommon salt you prescribed from the wholesale chemists and it has probably remained on his shelf for twenty years or perhaps longer here what we call chance and coincidence began to work during all these years the salt in the bottle was exposed to certain recurring variations of temperature variations probably ranging from forty degrees to eighty degrees and as it happens such changes recurring year after year at irregular intervals and with varying degrees of intensity and duration have constituted a process and a process so complicated and so delicate that i question whether modern scientific apparatus directed with the utmost precision could produce the same result the white powder you sent me is something very different from the drug you prescribed it is the powder from which the wine of the sabbath the vinum sabbati was prepared no doubt you have read of the witch's sabbath and have laughed at the tales which terrified our ancestors the black cats and the broomsticks and dooms pronounced against some old woman's cow since i have known the truth i have often reflected that it is on the whole a happy thing that such burlesque as this is believed for it serves to conceal much that is better should not be known generally however if you care to read the appendix to Payne knight's monograph you will find that the true sabbath was something very different though the writer has very nicely refrained from printing all he knew the secrets of the true sabbath were the secrets of remote times surviving into the middle ages secrets of an evil science which existed long before aryan man entered europe 
men and women seduced from their homes on specious pretenses were met by beings well qualified to assume as they did assume the part of devils and taken by their guides to some desolate and lonely place known to the initiate by long tradition and unknown to all else perhaps it was a cave in some bare and wind-swept hill perhaps some inmost recess of a great forest and there the sabbath was held there in the blackest hour of night the vinum sabbati was prepared and this evil gruel was poured forth and offered to the neophytes and they partook of an infernal sacrament sumentes calicem principis inferorum as the old author well expresses it and suddenly each one that had drunk found himself attended by a companion a share of glamour and unearthly allurement beckoning him apart to share in joys more exquisite more piercing than the thrill of any dream to the consummation of the marriage of the sabbath it is hard to write of such things as these and chiefly because that shape that allured with loveliness was no hallucination but awful as it is to express the man himself by the power of that sabbath wine a few grains of white powder thrown into a glass of water the house of life was riven asunder and the human trinity dissolved and the worm which never dies that which lies sleeping within us all was made tangible and an external thing and clothed with a garment of flesh and then in the hour of midnight the primal fall was repeated and re-presented and the awful thing veiled in the mythos of the tree in the garden was done anew such was the nuptiae sabbati i prefer to say no more you haberden know as well as i do that the most trivial laws of life are not to be broken with impunity and for so terrible an act as this in which the very inmost place of the temple was broken open and defiled a terrible vengeance followed what began with corruption ended also with corruption underneath is the following in dr haberden's writing the whole of the above is unfortunately strictly and entirely true your brother confessed all to me on that morning when i saw him in his room my attention was first attracted to the bandaged hand and i forced him to show it to me what i saw made me a medical man of many years standing grow sick with loathing and the story i was forced to listen to was infinitely more frightful than i could have believed possible it has tempted me to doubt the eternal goodness which can permit nature to offer such hideous possibilities and if you had not with your own eyes seen the end i should have said to you disbelieve it all i have not i think many more weeks to live but you are young and may forget all this joseph haberden m d in the course of two or three months i heard that dr haberden had died at sea shortly after the ship left england miss lester ceased speaking and looked pathetically at dyson who could not refrain from exhibiting some symptoms of uneasiness he stuttered out some broken phrases expressive of his deep interest in her extraordinary history and then said with a better grace 
but pardon me, Miss Lester, I understood you were in some difficulty. You were kind enough to ask me to assist you in some way. Ah, she said. I had forgotten that. My own present trouble seems of such little consequence in comparison with what I have told you. But as you are so good to me, I will go on. You will scarcely believe it, but I found that certain persons suspected, or rather pretended to suspect, that I had murdered my brother. These persons were relatives of mine, and their motives were extremely sordid ones. But I actually found myself subject to the shameful indignity of being watched. Yes, sir, my steps were dogged when I went abroad, and at home I found myself exposed to constant, if artful, observation. With my high spirit, this was more than I could brook, and I resolved to set my wits to work and elude the persons who were shadowing me. I was so fortunate as to succeed. I assumed this disguise, and for some time have lain snug and unsuspected. But of late, I have reason to believe that the pursuer is on my track, unless I am greatly deceived. I saw yesterday the detective who is charged with the odious duty of observing my movements. You, sir, are watchful and keen-sighted. Tell me, did you see anyone lurking about this evening? I hardly think so, said Dyson. But perhaps you would give me some description of the detective in question. Certainly. He is a youngish man, dark, with dark whiskers. He has adopted spectacles of large size in the hope of disguising himself effectually. But he cannot disguise his uneasy manner and the quick, nervous glances he casts to right and left. This piece of description was the last straw for the unhappy Dyson, who was foaming with impatience to get out of the house, and would gladly have sworn eighteenth-century oaths if propriety had not frowned on such a course. "'Excuse me, Miss Lester,' he said with cool politeness. "'I cannot assist you.' "'Ah,' she said sadly, "'I have offended you in some way. Tell me, what I have done, and I will ask you to forgive me. You are mistaken, said Dyson, grabbing his hat, but speaking with some difficulty. You have done nothing, but as I say, I cannot help you. Perhaps, he added with some tinge of sarcasm, my friend Russell might be of service. Thank you, she replied. I will try him and the lady went off into a shriek of laughter, which filled up Mr. Dyson's cup of scandal and confusion. He left the house shortly afterwards, and had the peculiar delight of a five-mile walk through streets which slowly changed from black to gray, and from gray to shining passages of glory for the sun to brighten. Here and there he met or overtook strayed revelers, but he reflected that no one could have spent the night in a more futile fashion than himself. And when he reached his home, he had made resolves for reformation. He decided that he would abjure all Milesian and Arabian methods of entertainment and subscribe to Muddy's for a regular supply of mild and innocuous romance. End of Novel of the White Powder